Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning again, everyone. Now we'll check in on the housing market for today and perhaps for the year ahead. We did a segment recently on how it's such a terrible time to buy or sell a home. Mortgage rates are making home purchases unaffordable for so many more people than when interest rates were lower, and people don't want to sell at the lower prices that they would have to command to incorporate the interest rates to make them affordable for a lot of buyers. So it's been a bad time to buy or sell a home. But mortgage rates are dipping down slightly. They are still far higher than before the pandemic. And nationally, housing developments, that is, construction of new homes, looks to be resuming, at least for now. So while this might be the worst time to buy a home in a long time, some economists think 2024 could be what? The year of the renter. For those looking to buy their first home, there are a couple of trade-offs to be considered uh, compared to renting. So joining us now to break down some of the math that potential home buyers or renters should take into consideration to make the best decision and how the housing market might look as this year goes on is Rhonda Kaysen, real estate reporter for the New York Times, who has an article on this. Hi, Rhonda. Thanks for coming on. Welcome to WNYC. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, there are a lot of places we could enter in yeah. the home buying and selling market or in the rental market. So let me enter here. More apartments, you write, are under construction than at any time in half a century, delivering renters more new apartments than they've seen in decades. What are the implications of that? Yeah, so we have a million new units of rental housing um, under construction right now. We have not seen that many units of housing since 1973. Um, and about more than half of them are going to be available this year. And they're being built all around the country, um, primarily not New York, in the Sun Belt and um, up through the Rockies and in the Midwest. Um, but they're being built not just in cities, but also in the suburbs and exurbs. Um, and even New York is going to see, has, has already seen increase in inventory because um, there is some construction happening here, but also um, there's a lot of people who were going to sell their condos or co-ops, you know, are struggling to sell and are deciding to rent them instead because rents are still actually really high so they can get, you know, pretty good money for their rent. So that's adding inventory in New York. Interesting. And you're right, mortgage rates have edged down from their October peak of almost 8%, and inventory has ticked up as sellers creep back into the market. And yet it's still a bad time to buy, right? Yeah. I mean, one economist put it this way, you know, he said, basically, houses have become like a luxury good, because home prices are still up 45% since before the pandemic. So you're looking at you know, the houses, houses, house prices are just at, at enormous highs and the borrowing costs are still really high. I mean, we're not at 8%, but 6.6% still pretty high interest. Um, so you're buying a product that's sort of peaked. I, you know, economists don't think home prices are going to go up much this year. They may be flat. They might go up maybe half of normal. So unless you're going to stay in your house for 10 years, um, it's not the best financial decision right now to buy a house. Did you see that stat? 
from Manhattan recently. And, you know, Manhattan is its own market and doesn't necessarily reflect everywhere. But but I think there's some uh, broader implication of this that a crazy large share of the home purchases in Manhattan last year were in all cash. And what that really says is not so so much that a lot of people have a lot of money out there, so they're buying all cash, but that the only people who can afford to buy practically are those with enough money to avoid the extra expense of interest rates. Yeah, it's 60%. It's insane. And um, it's twice the national average of cash buyers. And, um, you know, so cash buyers in Manhattan are absolutely dominating the market, which makes it even harder to buy because prices kept going up in in New York City last year. They're up like 10%. So if you're trying to buy and you have a mortgage and there's not that much inventory in the market and you're competing with people with all cash, it's just still a very hard market to buy a house or an apartment in. So say people do the classic formula, if they're hoping to buy, of 20% down payment on a house at, let's say, $400,000. That's not a house in Manhattan, but, you know, a lot of places. So to use the example in your article, that's the example that you give, a 20% down payment on a $400,000 house. Does fluctuating a point or half a point in the interest rate uh, make a difference to buyers in that position? It actually does. So if the if you were to buy it today, it's like, say, 6.5% for a 30-year loan. Um, it's a little higher than that, 6.6, but let's say you get one for 6.5. Your monthly payment just for interest and principal, not counting taxes, would be t- like just over $2,000, $2,023 a month. If the rates went back up to 7%, you would be paying $2,129 a month. Um, but if you had bought during the pandemic, that same payment would be $1,349. So that gives you a sense of where the sellers are at. Because if I own an apartment right now and I'm paying our house and I'm paying $1,349 a month for mortgage and interest and I go and I want to buy a different place, and my, my payments are going up substantially. And so I'm going to lose so much money just in interest payments alone that it doesn't make sense. It's just not a smart financial move for me to move. So listeners, help us report this story. Anyone out there considering buying a home this year? What calculations, financial or otherwise, are you making in order to make it happen or to decide whether it can happen for you? Or if you recently purchased a home, uh, how's it working out financially? And we'll discuss with our guest for some of you out there, even with a down payment, uh, as we were just saying, the interest rate on your mortgage plus additional fees uh, might be more than you paid for rent in your last rental. So how are you making it work? 212-433-WNYC. Call or text 212-433-9692. And for you renters, anyone apartment hunting right now. Help us report that part of the story. What are you seeing in the market? We know a significant portion of renters in New York City and the metro area are rent burdened, meaning paying shares of your income for rent that are considered, um, you know, really burdensome and squeeze you uh, unduly for other things. But anybody listening who's been able to ease that burden in our listening area or really anywhere in the country where you happen to be listening right now, B, 
because the rental market is a little better than the home buying market uh, for the people living there. 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. Or who moved regions to or from the New York area or wherever you moved to or from, largely because of home prices, buying or renting, 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692 for our guest, Rhonda Kaysen, who's been writing about this for the New York Times. Um, I guess a question that a lot of people might have, Rhonda, based on you know the first part of our conversation is what do economists think are going to happen with interest rates this year, particularly mortgage rates? Will they trend down significantly? Um, most economists, sort of the most optimistic, thought we might go sort of dip below 6%. And the pessimistic thought we might, or the pessimists thought we might rise, uh, creep back up to 7%. Um, so we're kind of in a holding pattern. I think, in you know, the, the, the line I'm getting is that interest rates are kind of where they're going to be. They may edge down a bit. They may go up a little bit. But we're not we're certainly not going to go back to three percent interest rates um, unless something drastic happens in the economy, which nobody you know, which you wouldn't want to happen anyway, would make it an unpleasant time to buy a house for other reasons. So um, and home prices, because we have such a lack of inventory, home prices aren't really going to come down a lot. So I think in many ways we are where we're going to be. And, um, you know, any changes are going to be very incremental at this point. Explain the last part of that a little more. When you say home prices aren't going to come down very much because there's a lot of inventory. A um, lack of inventory. A lack of inventory. That makes sense. But I, I guess it means that people just aren't willing to sell um, if they have to reduce the price, right? They have a, a goal in mind or they're thinking about, you know, 2019 or 2021 kinds of prices that their home would bring and with what people can afford now with the high interest rates, which is less for them as the seller, uh, they're just not willing to come down? Right. I mean, it's not so much that they're not willing to come down in price. There's a couple of factors going on. One is there's a long-term trend toward people staying in their longer, and that predates the 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 pandemic people mm -hmm. have been living their homes longer it happened with boomers and it may extend into the next generation so that's one piece of the story the other piece is if you if you secured a, locked in a three percent or two and a half percent interest rate um home prices are still really high so you're the, you're now going to be a buyer like everybody else and so you may look at that environment and just say, it's not worth it for me to move right now. Maybe we'll just, you know, put the kids in, you know, have the kids share a bedroom longer, or maybe we'll remodel that. Um, it doesn't make a lot of sense to trade what you have now for something that's going to cost you substantially more to own. And so I think it's less about them lowering the price and more about um, people making do with the situation they're in and seeing that a move is not, going to improve the quality of their lives tremendously. And so if you go back from this, though, the bigger the bigger picture is that we haven't built enough housing since the Great Recession. And mm. so we are underbuilt dramatically of all types of housing, not just rentals, but single families, multifamilies, townhouses, 
um, housing for seniors, all sorts of housing we have underbuilt anywhere from 2 million units on the conservative end to almost 7 million units. So that shortage of housing means there's not a lot of new supply to make up for the fact that people are staying put and it's keeping house home prices high because there's just a massive scarcity of available homes to buy. Nationally speaking, why is there all that underbuilding? Uh, we talk a lot on this show about the need for more housing construction you know, in the New York metro area and that there's so much resistance. Everybody says, oh, we desperately need affordable, uh, more more affordable housing. And then the second thought is just don't put any near me. <laughs> and that yeah. NIMBY stops home construction in our area uh, to a really kind of devastating degree right now. Is it the same thing around the country? Um, that's one piece of it. And that's a big piece of it, right? But there's also like, if you go back to 2008, um, you know, there was this glut of housing that came on the market because of the foreclosure crisis and developers just stopped building and they stopped building for a number of years. And we went from building like 2 million new units of housing a year to like 400,000. That's what the economist at Fannie Mae just told me. And, you know, and now we've been picking back up and, the, you know, and the and home builders expect, you know, starts are up and in 2025, we're going to start to see a lot new of new units coming on. But we still have this shortage from those years that we have just, you know, the population has continued to grow. So we still just have this, this, um, you know, we didn't build all that time, right? So we still have a deficit from that time. But on top of that, you have like zoning rules that exist in communities all around the country, especially like the Northeast, where single family homes are prioritized, where you have to have, you know, front lawns, and you can't put in ADUs, and you can't convert your garage into a into a home. And California has been really trying to fix that. Um, but those those pieces, those sort of structural um, politics play a part in it. Um, that's why you're seeing a lot more development in the Sun Belt where zoning rules are looser. But also labor costs are really high here. Material costs went up. Interest rates have gone up for developers just like they've gone up for home buyers. Um, and then on top of that, there is an element of nimbyism. Um, you know, you, you want if you own a house it's not necessarily in your best interest for prices to come down. And so if they're going to build a bunch of new housing right, right near you, it right. might affect your yeah. personal um, investment. So interesting. I came into this conversation thinking we would talk a lot about how how much we've digested the changes from the pandemic so far. And you're telling me we haven't yet digested the changes from the Great Recession of 2008, which was largely a mortgage crisis and uh, attending credit crisis. Albert and Tom's River, you're on WNYC. Hi, Albert. Hey, Brian. How are you? Uh, so I just wanted to give you a quick story. Um, I am going to be putting my house on the market. Uh, only because of the value that has grown in eight years. I built my home at the Jersey Shore. I only paid three sixty-five, and I have been evaluated from multiple realtors at eight hundred thousand. So, I guess uh, you know it, it helped me quite a bit in doing that. But I had to wait for our mayor's race to enact because they had a CO issue, and now that the new mayor's in with his team, uh, we no longer require COs on a on a resale. So that would made me pull my trigger. I guess my question is, is that I'm going to South Carolina, Myrtle beach, where with the equity I have and some of my savings, I can buy two houses cash. I guess my thought is, uh, even for your guests who reports is, you know, would I, would I be better served of buying three houses 
and then mortgage one of, you know, like have a small mortgage on two of them as investment properties and have the house, my primary home I have is owned outright cash. And then, you know, wow. take the, uh, the money I have left over and buy two houses for <laughs> rental income. My head is spinning a little bit from those scenarios, but Rhonda, one takeaway, I don't know if you can answer his precise question about multiple investments, but he's moving to South Carolina because of home prices. Yeah, um, I'm not a financial advisor, so I can't give you advice on whether how to structure that arrangement, but I do know actually the Jersey Shore is an area where prices have really gone up a lot. Um, one thing though, that is interesting is, um, Americans overall are moving less, but when we move, we're moving for home prices. And so in, it's a really interesting move that you're making because that's really following a trend. Like people are leaving New York and they're heading to New Jersey or Florida or Connecticut where it's a little bit cheaper. People are leaving Boston and they're heading to Worcester. And so when we're moving, it's the cost of housing is the single biggest driver of our move. And so it's interesting, like you said, if you can get literally three houses for the price of one, um, that is sort of a mind-bending um, thought. Yeah, and it goes back to another story we've covered on the show recently, the report that came out that showed for all the talk in the political sector uh, about how people are leaving New York State and this region because of high taxes, what it really turns out to be is that people aren't leaving. Uh, it's not the rich who are leaving to escape taxes. It's the more middle income people and lower income people who are leaving. And the reason primarily is housing costs and other things in the private sector. Shannon in Westchester, you're on WNYC. Hi, Shannon. Hi, guys. Thanks for taking the call. I appreciate it. I love every point uh, that you guys have been talking about. One of the things that I think I wanted to pull on the, a little bit on this little thread was institutional investors. You know, looking throughout the time of you know, people coming to New York and they're starting a family, typically they go into, you know, in the city when they're young, in their 20s and height of their career, typically move to the suburbs when they're ready to raise children. And then after that, do the great migration down south. Um, one thing that I've been seeing more and more since 2008 is the uh, advent of institutional investors getting in, I think, right, some the number is something north of 20% of all single-family homes. I was wondering your thoughts on how that also limits that cycle of people you know, starting in the city, going to the suburbs, retiring in more affordable area like Albert's doing. Um, doesn't that also have a great effect on the amount of people that's there um, or what's available? Great question. Yeah, corporate um, corporate investments in homes as artificially um, stoking the prices. Yeah, actually, um, I could talk about this one for days. I wrote um, a story uh, last September about a community in Charlotte, North Carolina, where um, literally every home but one on one block sold to a sold to a real estate investor in a period of two years, and. Um, you know, Wall Street has been investing since 08 in single family rentals, single family homes and converting them to rentals. And they've really targeted what's like the starter home. So they don't if you know, if you go want to buy a, a million dollar house in Charlotte, they'll be cash buyers, but they're not going to be Wall Street. But if you're trying to buy a two hundred thousand dollar home um, in a you know mixed neighborhood with a four, you know, with good schools, you're going to be competing with um an investor who then like progress residential 
or um, invitation homes. And it's really transforming those communities um, into rental communities rather than um, for sale communities. And it is another factor that's making it really hard for people, for first time buyers to break in. One more call. Elisa in Queens. You're on WNYC. Hi, Elisa. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm doing fine. Thank you to pick up my call. Um, I have a question. I just hear you talking about the housing billups like a brand new house. And I'm participating in the program called uh, Virtual Section of Housing. And I have it. So I just want to know if it's difficult for me to get a, like a brand new house or I'm looking in the market now to see if I could get something. Give me an idea what can I do for me to participate in that to get my new house. And, and I think, you, so, I think you, you said to our screener that maybe a two-family house because yes. you could have one unit for, for income. Yes. Um, well, again, I know you're not a financial advisor, Rhonda, but can you help Elisa at all? So, Elisa, I just was a, to make sure I understand you. You have Section Eight housing, is that right? Is that was did I miss? Yes. Did I misunderstand? Yeah, I. You know, I yes. don't write about Section Eight too much. So, I, what I do know mm -hmm. though is that um, that again, there's a shortage of of Section Eight vouchers. It's great that you have one. Um, I can't, you know, I really actually don't know how that would work and it, it's not my area of expertise. Um, but it is, you know, adding, you know, getting access to a two family home where you could have income generating is obviously hugely beneficial for, for people. Elisa, I hope that's a little bit of a start. Um, listeners, uh, text us some advice for Elisa and we'll try to throw it in, although we're coming to the end of the this segment, um, I, I, I want to bring up the, the non-financial aspect of all of this to close, because you write about how the math might not make sense for Elisa or anybody else if potential buyers are looking for an investment primarily. Um, but that changes when considering what you call a forever home meaning right. the emotional aspect of all this needs to be taken into account too, right? Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, I think that's a really important thing to think about. If you're going to live for somewhere for three years, you know, you do want to think about the short-term market. But if you're looking for a place to live for 10 or 10 years or longer, and, you know, there's a huge benefit to stability. It's it's really, it, it you know, I don't think it all comes down to dollars and cents. And eventually you will make, the money will have, you know, the house will have a return. But, um you know, if you're if you have a kid in high school, as I do, and um, you have to move suddenly because your landlord doesn't want to renew your lease, that could have a huge lasting impact on your kids if they have to go to if they have to change schools. Right. Um, if your commute suddenly gets substantially longer, um, renting, unless you have a rent stabilized lease, has a lot of built in instability in it. And there's a lot of generational wealth that is built through stability. And so I don't want to say to people don't ever buy. Um, I think that those, it's not always just dollars and cents. It's not like investing in a stock. You're investing in your life and you have to live somewhere. And there may not be any rentals that you like in the neighborhood that works for you, or they may not be any rentals that are available that are large enough for your household. So, um, 
you know, it's an emotional decision. And, and for many people, um, living in one place for a long period of time has enormous benefits that go beyond just the cost of housing. Um, and also, whatever you pay right now is locked in because of the way our, because of the way our mortgage system works. You're locked in. That's going to be your monthly payment forever. I mean, until the loan expires, until you pay off your loan, which isn't true with renting. So you have you your salary will change over time and your monthly payments won't. And that um, is tremendously valuable and stabilizing. Rhonda Kaysen, real estate reporter for the New York Times. Not many of our segments on any topic end with the word stabilizing these days. <laughs> so thanks so much for that. And thank you very much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a delight. It was great speaking with you.